As another year draws to an end, it's a good time to review your practice. So many things happen in the course of a year. You might have had our personal ups and downs. But what you can be sure about is that the year that passed is now its just a memory. Its only reality is when it arises in the mind as a memory. Whatever events, experiences that we've had that may be stuck in the mind now as a memory, all they can do is come up, arise, and pass away. We can be mindful of them as a memory. <clears throat> and we can review and learn things from our successes and achievements or from our mistakes, failures. But they're all behind us. In the future, next year, is still also just a thought, just a plan, just an expectation. The only thing we can really know is the present moment. And even the present moment, what can we know? We can know this body, this mind, <coughs> the feelings, memories, thought formations, sense consciousness arising and ceasing. And the Buddha reminded us that None of this is to be clung to as a self, me, mine, myself. Because where there's clinging, it will be a cause for becoming, birth, and more suffering. Nibbana is the mind that is no longer clinging. It's an attribute of Nibbana, it's non-clinging. And then the deathless, non-birth, non-becoming, non-birth, non-attachment, non-clinging. This can only come about when we see the harm and the suffering of clinging, what clinging and attachment leads to. But as the Old Thai king, Rama the Ninth, found out when he asked Lumpodun that question, what attachment or kilesa should we abandon first? <clears throat> what should we make the focus of our practice? And Lumpodun answered, well, whatever's arising, whatever comes up first, that's what you abandon first. Whatever you cling to, 
you abandon that sense of self that is underlying the clinging, causing the clinging. Clinging arises in the present moment experience. We have a moment of clinging and then we can follow that with a moment of realization, mindfulness, wisdom, awakening. And we see the harm of that clinging, see it as a cause of suffering, so we stop clinging and let go. not something we do next year, it's not something we did last year, it's, it's an ongoing practice. We're developing the skill of non-clinging, non-attachment from moment to moment. So our practice of the Eightfold Path comes right down to this in the present moment. When all the factors of the eightfold path are present, supportive conditions, then our practice of non-clinging, non-attachment will be good, will be efficient. We'll be awake, aware, mindfulness, clear, sampajanya, clear comprehension will be there. Wisdom will be there. There'll be full knowing and letting go of whatever the mind is clinging to. When that skillful means or tool is not so well developed, then clinging can reoccur, reform. It doesn't matter whether we're a monk or a lay person, male or female, whoever we are, clinging can arise any moment, any time, any day, any time. But similarly, non-clinging can also arise when we direct our mind to it. So all the Dhamma teachings the Buddha gave in this path of practice, they have the, the goal of non-clinging. They're directing us towards non-clinging in their different ways. <coughs> And that can be a skill in itself because we're tempted to not cling to anything when we hear this teaching. So even the teachings, the Dhamma, the Vinaya, the path of practice, sometimes we get confused and we discard that. We throw the baby out with the bath water. Lumpur Mahabur used to say, in the beginning we do cling, but we cling to that which is useful to us until we're ready to let go. So when we train as Buddhist monks, well, we cling to the Vinaya in the beginning. That's not clinging blindly, that would be Silapata Baramasa. We cling with wisdom, in the sense we know we're crossing an ocean and we need a raft across the ocean so we cling to the raft. We need it to train ourselves. 
we cling to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, but only enough to use as a skillful means to give rise to the state of non-clinging. So sometimes Lumpur Cha would say we cling, but not too tightly. We hold something in mind, but not so firm that we can't see the truth. We can't see, see the truth that it's not self. This is a tricky point in our Dhamma practice. We cling, but then we're not clinging. We have to learn the Vinaya, but then we're not to cling to it. We learn a meditation technique, like breath meditation, but then we're not to cling to it. And we gain insight into the three characteristics, but then we shouldn't cling to the insight. It can become a defilement of insight. Mindfulness can still become a defilement of insight when we feel we have continuous mindfulness. Sense of self can arise even around that. <clears throat> or the pity, or the sukha, the tranquility. Or realizations, we can cling to that. Or even great equanimity, we can still cling to with a sense of self. So this is a skill we're developing, clinging, but not too tightly. And using the Dhamma, the Vinaya, and the practice as a vehicle, as the raft across the ocean, but then ultimately discarding it. But we have to know the right time and place to discard it. We have to be honest. If we're still beset by defilements, mental defilements, negative emotions, all kinds of confusion and suffering, well, that's the time often to cling to the Dhamma Vinaya, not to discard it. But as our wisdom progresses, we're, then we'll be a little bit more aware, more refined in our understanding. Then we may be in a position to understand more deeply what is clinging in its nature, what leads to suffering, what is useful clinging, what is not, and so on. When we begin the practice, we need the Vinaya because our old habits are based around clinging. If you review the text where we have clinging to sensuality, gama upadana, the objects of the senses, so form, sights, sounds, taste, smell, touch, and then the objects of mind, which are endless. You take all the other five, we can remember past sense objects. We can remember them, we can project onto the future, high and low, near and far, coarse and refined. All the concepts, ideas, memories, they all become mental objects, still sense objects, sense impressions, which we cling to, sensuality not just the, 
the beautiful and the desirable, we cling to the undesirable because we react to it with aversion. So it's not just the pleasurable things, the unpleasant as well, we cling to sensuality. Ditu padana, cling to views. Your views about ourselves, the world, what's right, what's wrong. Views of the Dhamma, the Vinaya, but clinging, holding on tightly, so it becomes a cause for a sense of self to arise and the cause of suffering. Even views and opinions on the Dhamma can be a cause of suffering, as we know, can be cause for arguments, disagreements, dis disharmony between monks or practitioners. Sila patu padana, clinging to practices. Clinging to the different cultural conditioning we have, based, different customs, practices, external practices that we do. Clinging even to the Vinaya can become a source of suffering, judging ourselves. I'm a good monk, I'm a bad monk, I keep the Vinaya well, badly, judging others, comparing with others, other traditions, other religions. And the deepest clinging is Atawadu Padhana, clinging to the sense of self, self-identity, so Sakaya Ditti, but even the most refined sense of conceit. Say that the higher stages of the path are still the clinging to the conceit of I based around consciousness itself. In the consciousness of jhanas or rupa jhanas or just the conceit of I know, I am. Clinging to the very radiance of the pure jitta in samadhi still form of clinging, clinging to insights, the most subtle kind of self. So we have all these kinds of clinging that we can remind ourselves by reading the texts and hearing the talks. Then we still have to steer away through the Dhamma practice. And we take on the Vinaya and use it as a skillful means. So we hold to it, cling to it, but not so tightly that it becomes a cause for suffering or disharmony. We cling to the knowledge that we've gained from the text, from the Buddha's words, or from our teachers. But again, not so tightly, because those are still the words of others. We have to internalize them contemplate them, compare our own experience until we know and see for ourselves. So clinging is both a danger to us in the sense it's the cause of suffering, but it's also the place where we are going to get liberated by recognizing how clinging forms, craving conditions arising of clinging, clinging, conditions becoming, in birth, and all the dukkha that follows. We're recognizing the nature of clinging as a cause of suffering.
the way we recognize is training the mind to observe, understand, training in mindfulness, clear comprehension, developing that ability to look back at our own experience from moment to moment through meditation, walking, sitting, but ultimately in all postures through our day, learning to reflect back on the nature of our own experience from moment to moment. And what we can all see, little by little, is that you know this solid sense of self that we cling to and have built up as an image and an idea <clears throat> in our mind, and that we remember, it's not so solid. The effect of cultivating mindfulness, clear comprehension and insight is that we start to disperse the sense of solidity and continuity in our experience. So we start to see the five kendas as they are. Conditioned phenomena that arise and cease. So we see the arising and ceasing of thought as we meditate. Become more familiar with cessation rather than keep getting caught up in the new story, the new line of thought, the new mood. Becoming more familiar with the cessation of the moods, the thoughts, the imaginations, the feelings. Whatever is of nature to rise, it's the nature to cease. And these kind of simple insights over time become very profound. They build momentum, as it were, become part of our conditioning not to grasp and cling to experience so strongly because we know it's going to be going to fading away in cessation. In the beginning we use that particularly with the more extreme emotional states we get in, you know, the highs and the very lows, because that's where our suffering is most prominent. So however high we get, we know it won't last. But however low we get, it also won't last. Lumpur Cha used to talk about how practitioners can be hesitant or nervous or shy to practice. He'd say it particularly about lay people, because there's a lot of poor people in northeast Thailand where he lives. He'd say sometimes he'd say they're nervous to make merit because they feel they're not good enough. They feel they're too poor, they're not very important in society, just some humble villager or humble farmer. They don't feel they're able to make merit in any way. They always think about, well, I'll do it next life or in some point in the future when I'm wealthier and more status and I'll make my merit. But even meditators are like this. We can we feel like, well, I'll work at my samadhi and when I get my samadhi then I'll do vipassana or practice insight and I'll gain my insight. So it always remains some kind of far off experience that we'll get at some point in the future. The whole point about our practice is, is whatever's coming up, we can establish mindfulness and see its nature as to arise and cease and let go of clinging right here in the present moment. We can do that anytime. We don't have to be rich. We don't have to have 
deep state of samadhi, all we need is enough mindfulness in the present moment to recognize the impermanence of a state of mind or a feeling or sensation or just to observe the world around us, the changing nature, the coming and goings of this world. We don't have to have great barami to do that or great samadhi or be an enlightened teacher. The whole point is enlightenment experience is an experience of gradual waking up to the truth. And that means it's made up of many small moments of awakening. So literally any day, any time, there's an opportunity for realizations to come up. Just realizing, oh, I don't need to cling on to this particular feeling, just to watch it mindfully and let it go. I don't have to follow this way of thinking because it's just going to cessation anyway. As many teachers point out, just like these trails and uh, gravel roads around here, there's so many of them have the no through road sign on them because they don't go anywhere, they just go to a dead end and stop with bush or trees. If you keep bringing up mindfulness and contemplating, a lot of the suffering you see is just thought patterns and habits, different emotional states that end up just going to cessation. They're dead ends. And often we just travel around them because of habit. So we have to sharpen our mindfulness, and partly with too casual with our mindfulness practice. We allow things to just take over the mind and take us down these old pathways that we've been traveling so long, so many times. We have to be a bit sharper and take it a little bit more seriously if we're too casual and actually tell ourselves, stop, it's time to let go of this way of thinking, this perception, this belief, this way of clinging to whatever we're clinging to. It's not to let go and then be lost, letting go with mindfulness, with wisdom, simply understanding the nature of that habit is only to lead to, it only arises and ceases, it doesn't lead to anything good. So then you're letting go with understanding. <clears throat> and that skill you know, deepens and becomes more profound and that's where you become happier in the practice. If you've let go before, you know how to do it, you feel more confident, more happy doing it. You understand how to do it skillfully. So you're willing to do it more. And then even states of suffering, if you've understood how to let go before, they're not so so much of a concern. Can even be enjoyable to let go of some irritation or doubt or worry. As Lumpur Cha says, it's just like collecting up the mangoes from the bottom of the tree. Someone throws them down to you, you just collect them up. It's enjoyable. It's when you have enough mindfulness and wisdom functioning, you can just see a thought arises and ceases. A sensation in your body, hot and cold, hard, soft, 
just arises and ceases. In pain, painful feelings as you're meditating in the body, they're arising and ceasing. What arises and ceases, it's dukkha, it's not self. It's not to be clung to as me, mine, myself, because it's just a temporary experience. In so many ways we are looking at clinging like this, often in a very direct way as we meditate, but also when you can contemplate your own particular views and opinions and beliefs just any time, how we create clinging and attachment. In very obvious ways you can sort of consciously run through things you might be attaching to or cling to as self, your perceptions. Just ask yourself, is this perception correct? Like say, I was thinking about this, always doing plans for the monastery, for building and designing things. And these days the planning law means you have to have so many different maps and plans and documents and so on. And they always have the name of the monastery and the boundaries of the fence line and all that. But so obviously just human beings, their attachments and their knowledge superimposing on the actual reality which is just earth and water, <laughs> four elements. We put a fence line up and we say this is the boundary of the monastery and obviously we do cling to that, it's useful. We have to know the monastery, which is the monastery, which is not. Even the Buddha said we have to know the boundary when we're keeping the vasa where where we should be at dawn. You have to know who owns which property and so on. But at the same time, it's just a conventional reality we've stuck on the surface of the world and the rest of the world just the same. And a lot of the conflicts of the world come because in the last few hundred years many people have stuck lines on pieces of paper, made countries, put boundaries around countries, pieces of land, put boundaries on the ocean. So people are always having conflicts about boundaries. Whose is what? Those boundaries often cut between different cultures and ethnic groups. So just something like that, you know, the boundary of a monastery. You can see where this sense of clinging comes. Something you add on to the experience, which is just seeing <coughs> green grass, trees, rocks, water, air. None of those have names on, we just add them. Or reduce it down to yourself, this person you call yourself. Yeah, there's no label stamped on it. Me, my, myself, my name. They give you a name, they give you a name when you're born, give you a name when you become a monk, give you a name when you become a Jalkun. They're just names, labels. These bones and the flesh, the skin, they don't know any of those labels. They're just four elements. The feelings of pleasure and pain you experience from moment to moment arising and ceasing have no name stamped on them. They don't know they're uh, these, you know, you have a feeling in your knee or your leg or your back, 
bit of pain, it doesn't know who owns that pain. It's just a sensation. It can be very strong, piercing, hot, can be very mild, very dispersed. But there's no name on that. There's no self to cling to. It's just a feeling that you can be mindful of and clearly comprehend. A feeling arising, ceasing. Or you stamp a label on it, mine. And then it becomes a memory as well. So you walk around, I'm the one with the leg pain, the back pain, or this pain, or that pain. Or you can have aversion to it, I hate pain, I don't want this pain, and so on. And all of this is where the clinging comes in. Or there's just a sensation that you can be mindful of arising and ceasing in your consciousness and then let go. In Thai, in many of you learning Thai, they have this phrase, Changman, which means to sort of, it's a kind of a wise, not caring, if you use it properly, like the way the meditation masters use it. Changman means you never mind, don't bother about it. Who cares? It's not a cold kind of aversion. It's just recognizing that something is not to be clung to. So they say Changman. So you doing some work, it starts to rain or getting wet. Never mind. It's just rain. Or somebody says something you don't agree with, some opinion. Changman. You never mind. We have to learn how to develop that kind of ability to recognize where suffering forms where we do cling and then un, unbind from that clinging, Changman. Not to concern ourselves so much with these things because that's where suffering comes. In views and opinions, how much suffering have we had by clinging to an opinion arguing about it, often totally mistaken. Cling to something, cling to our sense of self, I'm right. And once you cling to an opinion, then you tend to get the sense of self comes out, this is correct, this is my view, I'm right. So then you have somebody else who's wrong. So you get disharmony, conflict. We can't help having knowledge and forming views and opinions and again we can use them to our aid because we need Dhamma teachings and we need to reflect on the Dhamma. We can use the Dhamma. So you could say that's views and opinions on the Dhamma but it's where we cling with a sense of self. 
So we also have to have that openness that we're still learning. As the Buddha said, you know, keep humble. So you cling to an opinion, but you also know maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it will change. The longer you practice, you see how your views and opinions about Dhamma evolve over time through experience. Some maybe seem to maintain some kind of consistency over the years, but many you'll see just change and evolve. And things that seem important become less important. Things that didn't seem important become important. If you're mindful, you'll see oh, these opinions are made up of many moments of thought, belief, arising and passing away. And what we hold on to is my belief, this is right, this is the way it is. It's actually something that's not quite so solid and permanent as it seems. This is why coming in contact with Dhamma from great teachers like Ajahn Chah, it doesn't, you can't find any clinging in it. Sometimes it's frustrating because it seems to talk about one thing one day and then another thing another day. Sometimes it even seems to contradict. Partly that's just the context of the, the talk or the comment he's made but also there's this sense of not clinging so if somebody's clinging very tightly maybe he has to help them to not cling by pointing out where they're wrong or giving an opposite view and then someone else comes along and he gives a completely different teaching because people's clinging and attachment varies so sometimes he was changed according to the person Everyone knows about the stories about you know, monks who don't like to do physical work and have the view monks shouldn't do any physical work. You send them off to shovel a pile of gravel or something. Monks who like to work, you send them off somewhere where there's no work to do. Just doing different things to help people see where they might be clinging. Monks who like to give Dhamma talks tell them to be quiet. Monks who like to be quiet and shy and make them get up on the high seat and give a Dhamma talk. It's all about helping you to see clinging desires, clinging attachments, out of compassion and wisdom, teaching, giving opportunities to see this, see where the sense of self is still lurking in the midst of our experience. Not letting you sleep when you want to sleep, not letting you eat when you want to eat. You know, it's endless where the sense of self will form. Where you would just use different, quite natural situations to help us understand. And you see the monastic life is doing that, whether there's a very skillful teacher, Ajahn Chah, or not. The monastic life is doing it anyway, because we have rules and practices and schedules and there'll always be times where things are not to your liking. You want to do something but you can't, or there's something you have to do that you don't want to do. 
but this is where you can observe clinging, attachment arising. So a wise practitioner uses these occasions rather than always running away or hiding or complaining. They use it as a situation to learn from. If you get in that habit, then everything can become a teacher. That's why you have that phrase, everything is teaching us. It's teaching us to see where clinging is and where we're suffering. In the end, the aim is to get to that point where nothing is to be clung to and the mind is just recognizing that from moment to moment. So the causes for more becoming, birth, suffering is not no longer promoted or supported. So Ajahn Chah used to say, the, the mind of the arahant is nothing. It doesn't have anything, it doesn't want anything, it isn't trying to be anything. You can't pin it down to a place, a time. It's not going forward, it's not going backwards, it's not stopping. It's nothing. It's emptiness. It's not clinging, non-attachment. That's got to the point where it's really skilled at it. So literally any of the candors unable to be like a little seed for clinging to arise anymore. Feeling cannot do it. Memory, thought, cannot do it. The body cannot do it. Can't be a cause for clinging to arise anymore. So the mind is free. It's liberated. That's why, you know, if you practice literally every moment, there's an opportunity to practice the Dhamma, to establish awareness, contemplate, let go, whatever we're clinging to in the present moment. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight for your contemplation.